All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. It's time to end Obamacare now. For the past eight years, we have been suffering under President Obama's ridiculous policies, the worst of which, Obamacare. And you know why it's bad. It raised premiums, it decreased patient choice, and it made people even more dependent on government. But when President-elect Trump takes office on January 20th, we can finally repeal Obamacare. But there are liberals in D.C. who are conspiring to save it. And the only way we can stop them is if we get grassroots activists like you to stand up to them and pledge to help President-elect Trump repeal Obamacare on day one. So stand with President-elect Trump and go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. Get involved. Help repeal Obamacare. If you don't act now, we won't be able to make a difference. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we need to repeal Obamacare on day one. And that's why you need to go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. It's time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Welcome back to the Steve Day Show. I know it seems like it was just 21 hours ago you were here, and lo and behold, it was. Thank you for tuning in here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. And again, we always love to know what you think about what we think. So let us know. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Speaking of conservative review, Daniel Horowitz will be here from CR in about 15 minutes to take us inside politics. But while we're on the topic of conservative review, this is, uh, we, we'd like to begin tonight's show with a big announcement. We are going to be moving permanently to CRTV beginning in February. I don't know the exact date yet in February, but uh, it will be sometime in February. Our last show for the Salem Radio Network will be, I think it's Friday, February 17th, Aaron? 
Uh, that sounds right. I can uh, definitely uh, check on that. It's, it's, it's sometime around there, but I think it's Friday, February 17th. We will sign off here on the Salem Radio Network. Now, I want to say this. Um, there are three, really only three radio networks in America that matter, and Salem is one of them. And 14 months ago, they created a time slot for us. They, they previously did not have a show on at this time. They created a time slot for us um, to, 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 because they believed in the vehicle, the platform that we wanted to build, the content that we wanted to produce. And I, I can't thank uh, Phil Boyce and Dave Santrella and Ed Atzinger and uh, the brass there at, at Salem Enough for doing that. It's it's been an incredible honor the last 14 months. I have no complaints at all. I, I mean, I really don't. And you guys know me. You know I can complain. I, I really don't have any complaints. They did a great job growing our show, including um, uh, placement in, in some major markets, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, um, St. Louis, and just a few of, of several. We, we really can't complain. Uh, they let us say whatever we wanted to say. Um, it, it's just been a blast. This time slot ended up working out fairly well for covering an election because we got to be on live when the results were happening, when the debates were going on, and that was a lot of fun. And and we kind of got to be ahead of the curve and analyzing those things and doing those things. I, I say all of that because it would take it would take quite an opportunity for me to voluntarily walk away from a position that less than 1% of the people that want to do what I do for a living ever get to. And that is being nationally syndicated on one of these three major networks. CRTV is just such an opportunity. Uh, its growth has, has, has exploded uh, since it was launched um, on the back of uh, Mark Levin's little media empire there, which isn't too little. That's how it was able to explode. And now it has expanded to include names like Mark Stein, Stephen Crowder, Michelle Malkin. To join uh, that kind of uh, select company, to be asked to do so, is an incredible honor. And And given where we believe this industry is heading in the future... Uh, with more and more people wanting things on demand, more and more people wanting things available to them digitally, uh, to have uh, a platform that, that that's already established itself to the extent CRTV has to, to, to be the launching point for us to make this evolution of where all of us are going to have to go in our industry anyway. I mean, I don't think there's ever going to be another Rush Limbaugh. I don't think anybody's ever signing 10-year, $250 million contracts to just do three hours of terrestrial radio ever again. Our industry is changing just like it did to the other media. Our industry is just better equipped for it. We're not nearly as arrogant about it, for example. Um, it's also more. It, it, it's also more. Uh, it, it's more convenient for us to make what we do portable than it is for the newspaper industry as well. But but still, this is where it is going. And if you've been working in 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 my shoes for the last few years, you knew that eventually you were going to have to make a move like this. It was just a matter of when is it the right time that there's enough people that have now made that transition themselves so that you don't leave a large portion of your audience behind. And I think now, given the success of CRTV, I think now is the time to do that. And then finally, there's a, there's a personal uh, issue here for me too. Uh, next month, um, my oldest is going to turn 16. She's taking driving lessons. Look out, America. Uh, my youngest is going to turn 10. Um, our second child, I refuse to call her middle child because I'm always worried about the 
um, uh, the stain of that term. So Zoe's our youngest daughter, our second child. Uh, she's 11. She'll be 12 in July. The time for me to enjoy this once-in-a-lifetime moment with them at home is running short. You know, Amy and I were thinking about it over Christmas. We really only have two more Christmases after this last one with all the kids, still kids. I don't want to miss that. And as much fun as it's been being on the air this time of night to give you a live play-by-play of an, of a heated election and to be a part of breaking news as it happens, I've got to be more a part of the breaking news as it happens at home. Okay, and I got one chance to do this as a dad, and I I go out of my way to do it the best I can already. And I know my kids would not complain. One of the advantages we have is as homeschoolers, we can shift things around a little bit easier than people who don't live this lifestyle are able to. But still, I, I you you stuff falls through the cracks, and I've got one chance to do this. So when CRTV came along and said, "Hey, we think you've built up enough of a following to make this move and bring your audience here." You know, when it was presented to my family, the idea that dad's going to be home at night again, it's one of those things where they made it work when it wasn't an option, but once it became an option, everybody was like, well, since you brought it up, we would much prefer it this way. So that was sort of the final clincher for me. Um, but as much as I needed to be home, if this wasn't an up, you know, a step up for us as a show, our family would have found a way to make it work. So this to me is an answer to prayer. It's the best of both worlds. It's a, it's a step up for us, and it's also going to be more accommodating. We don't know the exact time the show will air. It will be live and daily. Uh, it will be earlier in the day. Uh, it will not be at 9 o'clock at night. My guess it will be sometime late morning, midday, when we finally figure out what is the right niche on uh, the network uh, for us to fit into. But um, we're looking forward to it, and we're excited about it, and just can't say enough about what working with Salem has been like for the last year and a half, especially because I know the way I do my show is not easy particularly the stance that we took in a contentious election. But you guys are my witnesses. They, we never got any calls. There was never any looking over the shoulder. We were given total and complete freedom to say whatever we wanted to say. There hasn't been anybody since the election that has come to me and said, hey, you got to tone it down a little bit. We got to be team players, etc." Hasn't been like that at all. I, I have no complaints whatsoever. This was just an opportunity for us to, to go to where we think a show like ours is ultimately going to have to go anyway, and to do it at a time when there's not going to be a caucus going on that we're going to be on the front lines covering, right? There's not going to be an election going on. So this was the right time for me to go to my family and say, you know what? You guys have made a lot of sacrifices the last few years to help dad when he walked out of WHO radio, not knowing what he was going to do next, but he just felt like this is what God wanted him to do. You guys made a lot of sacrifices the last few years to help dad get to this point. And now that dad's got a chance to kind of pay it back here a few years into this, it's my responsibility to do that, particularly with Amy and I's time with the kids at home kind of rapidly coming to an end. So we want to say thank you to Salem. Thank you to all of you that have helped our show grow. I won't say fastest growing because you know what I mean. Uh, you know what I think when people say that, but you did help our show grow fast. Uh, and without your support, there's no way CRTV would think we had the audience to sustain making this move to their platform instead. If you want to get more information, there is a uh, there's a way to subscribe. Uh, 
uh, right there on Facebook, on our Facebook wall. Early bird subscribers that use my name for a promo code, you're going to get a substantial discount on your annual subscription if you take advantage of that during that uh, that early enrollment period. And as more information becomes available, the launch date uh, exactly, the time slot exactly, we'll let you know all of that right here on the show. So, gentlemen, your thoughts on uh, the big move? Well, this is uh, just, it's uh, like you said, this is the direction that our industry is going. But looking back, I just echo everything that you've said uh, about working with uh, with Salem. They have just been uh, just a first-rate operation. I, I uh, interact with uh, people from our affiliate relations and from programming and network operations. All of them are just awesome. And I just uh, I want to echo your thanks to them as well because it has been uh, a real blast and a blessing, really, to be able to uh, work with such people. I share, obviously, all your thoughts about uh, family. I thank all, to all the friends who helped my wife and I duct tape various uh, carpooling things together. It's going to be good to be home. And in the new challenges of being a uh, television, air quotes, star, bring it. I may have to shave more often. You already got a haircut, in fact. My wife made me. <laughs> You're listening to Steve Dace. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Steve Day Show. And back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Speaking of which, Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review to take us inside politics. Good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm telling you, Steve, it's never a good idea when we're both in a bad mood, so I'm hoping you're in a better mood than me. <laughs> I'm in a good mood, actually. We made a big announcement at the top of the show about uh, uh, the switch over to CRTV coming uh, in February, so we're excited about that. But um, let's talk some politics. And we are, what now, about uh, oh, almost 48 hours, uh, less than 48 hours, until the end of the Obama era. Since this is inside politics, not necessarily inside public policy, and of course, it you can't always separate the two, but as much as we can, I'd like you to ex- to assess his legacy politically, and 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 what that will mean, whatever that legacy is, what that means for us politically as a country going forward. I think Obama politically is more successful than Reagan was to Republicans. I think he has a tremendous legacy. Look, his approval rating is almost as high as Reagan's when he left office. Um, This man has transformed America, and he has shifted the entire political landscape eons to the left. I mean, light years to the left, so much so that his legacy lives on even after he loses. Um, I think nowhere is it more indelible than as it relates to so-called social issues. Um, He has destroyed the opposition. Under his watch, he he has won 50 years worth of culture battles in a matter of a couple years. Um, You know, Republicans are now to the left of where Democrats are in office. 
you, you don't have even a social moderate, a social libertarian anymore. We are all social decivilization people. And in fact, you just saw in the hearings we're watching from Trump's transition team, his new cabinet, other than Ben Carson, everybody has used their culture war terminology, and even Jeff Sessions, in their testimony. I mean, the thing here is they are using every alphabet soup uh, terminology in their parlance to every premise and i understand that you don't want to get off track and these are kind of sham hearings where you just want to skate through but don't tell me that somehow they're going to be different um when they're on the other side of this when you see the language when you see the parliament you have permanently seeded the political battlefield when it comes to social issues when it comes to fiscal issues dependency um remaking our national alliances obama is a darn good was a darn good president for democrats we can only wish we would have someone with 50 percent of the energy passion and commitment conservative causes it, it sounds like you agree with at least tacitly with something i wrote for conservative review earlier this week that that ultimate ultimately obama's legacy and you know we like to point out the 900 plus office holders that have lost uh the the lowest democrat party re- representation in american politics since before the great depression which was the beginning of uh, the new deal reshaping the electoral landscape and those things are all true too that's why it's it's sort of complicated to assess it but it sounds like your ultimate conclusion on his legacy is similar to mine which is that i think what trump does will determine obama's ultimate legacy is he is he truly committed to uprooting and any of the stuff that you just talked about. If he is, then then that legacy of Obama tilts a little bit more towards he overreached, took the country too far left, and you saw the backlash at the polls. If he's not, then you're right. He has set precedents that guys like you and I are going to have to fight back against probably for the rest of our professional careers. This is what Margaret Thatcher always talked about in England, and it's true here in America, with the ratchet theory. That the left, when they get into power, they swing that ratchet revolution after revolution, tranche after tranche to the left. When the right gets in, at best, they could lock what's in there in place. And in worst case, you can only move in one direction, the same direction we've always been moving. We promised ourselves that Obama's era was different. It was so radical, so destructive. The people so didn't want it. We're going to roll this all back. Uh, we definitely have the opportunity to do that. And if that happens, then... Obama's legacy will go the way of Reagan's, which was unfortunately countermanded to a large extent. But all the early signs indicate that even as it relates to Obamacare and the Iran deal, we're not even talking about Medicare, Medicaid, you know, the 50, 60 years worth of litigating the great society. We're talking about the the worst elements of Obama's tenure that, that Republicans were elected to replace. They're showing they don't want to replace it. If that is the case, Obama's legacy will probably be the most amazing legacy of, of any president from the last century. So this is this goes back to again a point that to we I made in this column for CR earlier this week. The the other side defines success differently than we do. I mean, yes, part of their of their definition of success is the amount of people office holders that the party that represents or most represents their values at the time currently holds. But, but they don't view themselves as limited strictly by that, that, that they will use whatever cultural machinery infrastructure exists by hooker hook by crook to move the fulcrum to the left. And, and that can be public education, that can be pop culture, that can be the media, um, uh, you know, that, that can be, again, whatever raw material is out there, whereas our side seems to primarily...
primarily and and maybe only define success by how many people with a, an abbreviation after R after their name hold office, irregardless of what actually they're doing once they're in office. Do you think that's too tough of a criti- critical observation on my part? Well, I know it's in my mind from reading your column earlier this week. That column was spot on. Republicans seek office while Democrats seek power. They seek transformation. Hmm. And you watch the Democrats at these hearings, and they are confident they are on offense. And Republicans, and both the nominees and the senators, are on defense. And what's amazing is it's not like you have a Republican president elected with a Democrat Senate. So you have to kind of skate through the nominations, you know, lie to them, say, oh, no, we agree with you. They have the votes to get these guys out of committee, pass their, you know, confirm them on the floor. Yet they agree to every single liberal premise. The left never rests. Our side just, uh, they, they, they just want to be in power, but they don't know what that is. And what's happened is, again, and I think you've alluded to this before, what's so destructive about having a Democrat party that's so extreme, even when they lose, is because they define the political landscape, they define the legitimacy of and the contours of what's acceptable political discourse. And they have dictated those terms by going so far to the left and by Republicans having no affirmative beliefs of their own, they're just not Obama or Hillary would have been worse. Well, you could easily be one to two tranches to the right of these individuals, but be solidly in destructive, harmful, liberal territory. And that's where we are now. Hmm. You know, when you talk about we only define ourselves by what we're against that the other side does, and and we have no really uh, real affirmative definitions of what we're trying to do here. We talked about that at the start of last night's show. And when we come back here in a moment, Daniel, I want to reset a little bit of that conversation. Uh, and and it, it relates to uh, Trump's upcoming uh, filling of Antonin Scalia's open seat on the U.S. Supreme Court and some interactions I had with other conservatives about this on social media. And I thought it was a perfect illustration of everything you just said. And I want to get your take on it when we come back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Free the free air while you still can. The Steve Day Show. Back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece for Conservative Review um, where I interviewed Andy Schlafly from Eagle Form, uh, himself an attorney, Phyllis Schlafly, or Phyllis, Phyllis, the late Phyllis Schlafly, Schlafly's sons. And he'd been doing some research on some of the precedents and and uh, legal work that the, 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 the heritage list that Trump's been working off of, apparently, for his judicial nominees and some of the prominent names that are being mentioned for the Supreme Court. And, and there are people out there like Ed Whalen at National Review and others who have some con- critical conservative analysis of what Andy wrote, which I'm totally fine with. I mean, that's how we come now and reason together. I, I'm not saying what Andy says is from his lips to God's ears, but I think his research is worth at least analyzing and taking a look at so we don't get fooled again by another David Souter. 
I had somebody yesterday, and, and I've, I don't know who it is, but I, I wouldn't check them out, and they've got ten to 15,000 Twitter followers, so they're not a nobody. Uh, and, and it's clear from their timeline they, they are a, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. And this person could not believe that, that I would dare to write that David Souter, I'm sorry, that, again, Freudian slip, that, uh, that, that, that Bill Pryor or Diana Sykes aren't conservative enough. And he said, hey, look at what the other side thinks. And he said, he disregarded all of the affirmative research Andy had done on behalf of our viewpoint, which again, you can, you can look at that and disagree with that. And I'm okay with it. But that's not what he did. He didn't take a look at it and say, yeah, you know what? Our guys took a look at this and think maybe he's, he, his reach has exceeded his grasp. He sent me, Daniel, a link from Think Progress, where they were basically saying Bill Pryor and Diana Sykes are going to put homosexuals in internment camps, which these people are paid to write this stuff about anything Republicans do, just as there are people on our side that are paid to criticize anything the other side does, even if they were to meet us halfway, which, of course, would never happen because they don't have to. But but heaven forbid, if they met us 90 percent of the way, there's people on our side that would complain they didn't give us that other 10 percent. That is the way advocacy media works. And, and we live in a day and age where we simply define ourselves by whatever outrages the other side, except they are paid to be outraged by everything we do. So John Lewis calls John McCain the same names that he calls Donald Trump, even though the way they present themselves could not be more diametrically opposite. And I just thought that was such an example of the hole we have dug ourselves, Daniel. I, I mean, remember, these people think <clears throat> the likes of Lindsey Graham are extremists. They think Anthony Kennedy is a conservative. They always rank him among the five to four conservative majority, even though Anthony Kennedy um, literally remade civilization from the bench. He's the most successful homosexual activist in American history. Instead of doing movies about Harvey Milk, they had to do movies <laughs> about Anthony Kennedy. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, he's the star, star of Brokeback Mountain there, and these guys will call him a conservative. It, it's a tactic. It's a political tactic that you never see the point. Look, we do it sometimes from our end as well. Um, you never want to see the point there. You can't define yourself by the contours of your enemy, of your political enemy, of the other side. This is our problem. You know, we, we are now counting down the hours to the end of Obama's presidency. Obama is done. I don't want to hear more about him. He's done. Hillary is done. She wasn't elected. So, well, but Hillary would have done this. Or What do we affirmatively stand for? Mm-hmm. Who are we? That is the question that we need to answer. I'm sick of this. I'm watching these hearings. You know, we all criticize Kerry and Obama on Israel. But then every single Republican nominee and senator, two-state solution, two-state solution. Well, that's 90% of what Kerry said. You know, what are we for? And I'm I'm seeing that on issue after oh Obamacare look what the Democrats did okay so what do we stand for well keeping qualitatively eighty percent of Obamacare it, 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 this is something that is not going to end until we have a movement that defines who we are and and sadly I don't think we yet have that and as you know from experience things only move to the left when Republicans are in power how do we get out of this is it even possible because let's also face it. So much of, of what of, of what we call conservative media is incentivized financially by this model. I, I mean, we're a long, we're many years away from Rush Limbaugh doing caller abortions. We're many years away from Rush labeling feminazis, from Rush writing books the way things ought to be. 
It's just, you know, from rush on down. And these guys are all reasons you and I get paid to do this for a living. So I hate to, you know, crap on, crap where we live here. But let's face it. <clears throat> most of these entities are just line up the liberal straw men every day, do the same show, all three hours, just change the name, write the same articles over and over again. Crowd goes wild because we think we did something because we vented. We go home. Meanwhile, they just pound this stuff down our throats after the, after the mic goes off. That's been the, that is the model for most of conservative media and advocacy in this country yeah i mean it's not a personnel issue it's a systemic issue we we have systemic problems in the way our government runs it does not run the way it was intended in fact in most cases it runs the opposite direction than our that that our founders intended as it relates to the judiciary the uh, unelected bureaucrats so it doesn't matter who you elect. Now, the only thing I'll say is the one force of nature is Donald Trump himself. All right, let's talk about that when we come back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Speaking of which, Daniel Horowitz is here from CR, taking us inside politics, as he does uh, each and every uh, Wednesday night here at this time. Now, now you were describing that there is a force of nature out there named Donald Trump to sort of break this cycle of it's only about uh, we, you know how we outrage the other side and we get our jollies off of uh, venting about them rather than advancing anything offensive. I want to let you finish that thought. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, it's it's quite evident that every element of the Republican Party has stayed in, in, intact. Uh, there has not been any movement in any of these people to change or become emboldened as a result of the election results. The Congress is worse than it's ever been. It's all going to boil down to Trump. Now, I think we already know we're going to see a lot of bad stuff from him, a lot of liberal stuff. But the question is, does he at least keep his promise on two or three major issues and break the back of Dems at least in one or two spheres of policy, kind of like Scott Walker did. I mean, you and I always talk about this. Scott Walker is one of the few people we could point to that actually uh, created a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. In, Drew Blood. And where he operated. Yep. And, and that, that's the question. Does he do this, or is, that, or is it all about the personal tit-for-tat on Twitter with the media, and in the meantime, we just do liberal thing after liberal thing? And the first thing is going to be Obamacare. There is no middle ground on this. You either fully repeal Obamacare, meaning the insurance coverage regs, and and at that point, I think we're in a very strong position. Even if they put in some so-called garbage replacement plan, if you get rid of that, you know, premiums will come down, and you'll break the back of Democrats on health care, which is one-fifth of the economy. But if you don't do that, which unless God interferes at this point, that is what they're doing. They're not repealing it. We are going to get crushed on that issue. So I'm just saying that is the first test. Um, you know, Trump says different, differing things on a daily basis, so it's hard to judge in the pregame show. But come next week, we're no longer in the pregame show. Agreed. We we can't judge Trump in the pregame show because he's so mercurial. I mean, you could wake up the next day and and everything you were banking on is now is null and void. What we can, though, game plan is what our side is prepared to do or unprepared to do um, in light of those facts. And, and so far, it seems as if, except for putting a tariff on goods 
which you and I would agree is bad policy, maybe for different reasons than our most Republicans K Street buddies would want. Um, you know, I, we funded this government with tariffs and customs and duties for 150 years. So if you wanted to go back to that, you wanted to get rid of the Federal Reserve and the 16th Amendment, we can have that conversation. But we're going to do that on top of everything else. All you're doing is charging working people more for what they're paying at Walmart and Target because the cost will just be passed on to them. That's why it's such a terrible idea. But other than that, tell me, tell me where you see optimism that there is, there is organized pushback organized um, reeling in, even organized requests from our side to steer Trump the right way. Tell me where you see this. I mean, the only place I could see realistically where I see this is immigration, homeland security. And I think we'll know that very soon, within a couple weeks. Does he take executive action to undo DACA, to undo a myriad of, of executive actions that Obama took on immigration, does he do something about refugees, which, by the way, he has the power to do without any legislation? I think if he can't stand up on those issues, it is very clear it's only downhill when you get to fiscal and social issues. I mean, I'll give you an example. If, if we took a look at that list after the election, and if, and if a prominent people, some prominent people on our side decided, you know what, instead of a traditional judge, let's go get people that have been politically vetted and stood up for our values. So we want Ted Cruz or Mike Lee in that Antonin Scalia spot. And and they affirmatively presented this to Donald Trump as, this is our solution to this problem. Plus, these people have Senate colleagues. They know how the process works. It's going to be a lot easier probably to get them confirmed than somebody from the outside, right? You present this to him. You you create a, a, a critical mass of support. And to me, that's how you get Trump to respond. I think he's more interested in responding to, give me solutions that make my life easier and make me look better rather than telling me what I'm doing is not good enough. Instead, that's not what we did. Instead, we we produced a lot of our people put clickbait out there. Hey, 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 join our petition to demand Democrats support all the Trump's nominees and, and pat the cabinet really quick like, right? And send them $5 to do it. So we did that instead, right? So, so you'll get stuck with Bill Pryor being a glorified John Roberts, if you're lucky. You'll get stuck with him instead because that's the way our side works. It's a question of are we going to be alphas or betas. You're exactly right. Uh, this is why we started Conservative Review. This is why I do what I do. We had our 20 Homeland Security ideas. I'm going to come up with a whole list of free market health care ideas that are not pipe dreams. These things are very easy to message. They're, they're very achievable. And I think you, if you had a couple dozen House members backed by outside conservative groups that are supposed to exist already – come to Trump with this stuff, we'd win on two, three, four issues or so. But sadly, unless that materializes quickly, I just see a bunch of uh, batting of eyelashes. Well, case in point, I saw this on Twitter. Lead story on Drudge last night. Trump operative Roger Stone survives assassination attempt from InfoWars. I mean, if that's... If that feces is what so-called conservatives want served up to them, and, and next to Fox, drudges the largest conservative media platform in the country. If that is what people, he, so he's not out to not have traffic. If that's what it takes to draw an audience, uh, then, then we may not be capable of doing the sorts of things you and I are, are, are even talking about here tonight. But my biggest concern here is that you need a target that people could see to even shoot at. You can't shoot at something you don't see. And if people don't understand the threats that, that are posed to our entire movement, that they're indeed not repealing Obamacare, that they're not taking action on immigration, that things are not changing on the Iran deal, on a bunch of these issues, because every second the conservative media is playing beta and catch-up 
and responding to the liberal media on the latest you know, personal tit-for-tat Trump did on Twitter, then we can't even solve the problem because people don't know what the problem is. Hmm. Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review takes us inside politics each week. You can get all of Daniel's insightful commentary, including his podcast right there at conservativereview.com. Thank you, Daniel. We appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Yeah, I mean, if if um, if if you know uh, Roger Stone peddling uh, just fake news conspiracy theories to Alex Jones, whose entire career is fake news, if 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 that's the lead story on Drudge, if if that's what you guys want, then I'm going to enjoy life as a backbencher. I, I'm just never doing that. Never. There's not an amount of money you could offer me, and even if I took it. I'd last for about a week before I recognized I'd rather kill myself. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Jenner's favorite program. Call me Caitlin. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Daniel Horowitz taking us inside politics. As we wind down, wind down at the final hours of the Obama era, we get set to kick off the reign of Trump. Daniel said a lot of uh, things. Uh, Todd, what did he say that stood out to you? The same thing he always says, that it's not an optimistic viewpoint with Trump coming into the White House right now for anybody who has their eyes wide open because Congress is the same as it ever was. And what's really going to be interesting to me, if Trump really legitimately has a vision quest that even though it might not he might might be turning into an arch conservative he is not if he has no level of patience for the way things have done before he's going to have to pick a fight with mitch mcconnell and company that will be fascinating if 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 he has the capacity to diminish him to the point of completely pushing him to the side that will have to happen because Mitch McConnell, at the age he's in, I'm, I'm sure he, he's he's fine. Based on everything you said, he, he the media, whatever, I, I can I can massage that. I'm sure he's fine getting into a grinded out with Donald Trump. I, I, so, it's Donald Trump prepared to really take him by the scruff of the neck and just absolutely embarrass him in a way that I believe Mitch McConnell probably thinks he doesn't have the capacity uh, or the attention span to do? I think yes is the answer, but probably not for the reasons, Aaron, that we would want. Mm-hmm. And I go back, I think, I think Daniel's example of Scott Walker is a good one. Because there is, even though Scott Walker did do something we haven't really seen too many Republicans, if, if any, in our lifetime do, which is... Um, mount casualties on the other side. There is a certain utilitarian aspect to where he chose to fight. Why did he choose to fight on the union front? Now, the, the, the right reason is we can't afford this. Our state is bankrupt, and that was true. But the real reason is my political opponents are using my own treasury to target me and my allies. 
And there's a certain common sense aspect of why would I fund my enemies? Why would, who knowingly does that? Who knowingly arms their, their adversaries? So I do think you can, if you came to Trump on that level, I, now I, I have serious doubts. There's many people with his ear that have this even strategic thinking on our side because I've not seen much of it. But if you came to Trump with, hey, Donald, do you know how much money Planned Parenthood gave Hillary Clinton? You know how much money you're going to give Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren who runs against you in 2020? Stop writing them checks, man. Would you, would, would, would you be writing Richard Branson at, at Virgin checks to compete with you on a billionaire front? No. I think if you came at him on that level, like, and I think the immigration front, why would we register new voters to vote against you? I think that is how you can motivate him to do some of these things, Aaron. I would agree with that. But if we accomplish anything, I, I don't think it's going to be necessarily because we have our act together, meaning conservatives. I think it's just because the other side's going to be so terrible. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here at the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. We'd love to know what you think about what we think. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, I think it was JFK, uh, at least in the political arena, who first coined the phrase, victory as a thousand fathers, but defeat as an orphan. So, of course, when you have somebody like Donald Trump go out there and, and prove that you really can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, including a whole bunch of eggs that really don't need to be broken, but it's just so much cotton-picking fun to do it anyway, and it works, <clears throat> and you get elected to the highest office in the land doing this, the natural inclination is, hey, let's emulate that. But can you? Read an interesting article about this. Beverly Hallberg is a conservative media consultant. Her company's called District Media Group. She's also a visiting fellow over at the Heritage Foundation. And she wrote a piece about whether or not what worked for Trump can work for others. And she joins us now here tonight on the Steve Day Show. Beverly, thanks for being a part of the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So let's just start right there. Can Trump be emulated? Is this something that can be his talking points, his mannerisms, uh, his style? Is this something that others can say, hey, it worked for him, maybe it'll work for me? I think if, they, if people think that it can be emulated, they should talk to Marco Rubio, because it didn't turn out too well for him when he tried to take Trump tactics on the campaign trail. So, no, the, the simple answer is I don't think it's something that can be repeated. I think it's the brand of Donald Trump, the brand that we've seen from him even before he ran for office. So to him, it's authentic. To anyone else, it's an act. That was going to be my next question. If it can't be emulated, then why did it work for him? Your your argument is he was a pre-existing celebrity with a predetermined brand, and so therefore there was an expectation level that this was going to be what he brought to the table, and he played to type. Is that sort of what your what your answer to that question would be? 
Yeah, I think there are a variety of reasons. I think one is it was just a really interesting period of time where people were done with politicians and people are rightly frustrated with the direction of the country. So I I don't think we can um, disconnect that aspect. But I would say he was able to pull it off because people had welcomed him into their homes for years with doing what? Well, firing people. Mm -hmm. You're fired was the famous line from Donald Trump this whole time. So when he talks tough, People believe it because he's already been talking tough on TV. And I I do think that there is this other aspect as well, which is people were very frustrated with uh, politicians just saying whatever they wanted to get elected but not doing anything about it. I think anybody who was willing to come in and kind of blow up that system and never have been um, never having been a politician before, they believed him when he said that he would blow it up. So I think. It's a unique moment in time, and I also think it's true as a brand that we've seen from him for decades. Are you saying that, stylistically, he is a one-off? He is a one-off Molotov cocktail and an angry electorate. When I was a kid growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, there was a local tire company that ran this ad where this little old lady would pedal this tire up the hill to the parking lot. And their ad was, hey, if, if you don't like our, if, if you don't like our service, you can return your tires. And she throws it through the, the, the showcase window and shatters all the glass with all of her might because she's so frustrated. Are you saying that you think this is a one-off and that's what voters did in this last election, but this doesn't necessarily represent some kind of permanent paradigm shift? Well, I would say that I think it's a one-off as far as this moment in time and Donald Trump himself and and the length that he goes to in some of these communication tactics. But the caveat to that is I do think there are things that we can learn from him. So it's not like I'm saying there's nothing we can take. And, And I would say one of the things that he has done extremely well is be able to bypass mainstream media to deliver a message that he wants. I think that's going to be the most interesting thing in his presidency is what happens when he continues to use social media. Where where does that go? So I think it's great how he's used social media and hasn't had to rely on mainstream media. What I would say, though, is I, I still question how long it it is going to work for him when he's now not just speaking to the people who voted for him, but he is now the president of everyone. So, for example, one of the things I would really like to see him do is continue to talk tough, continue to call people out, but not make personal attacks. So one of the attacks that he made against Meryl Streep was one that focused on her acting skills. I think he could have left off the acting skills and just focused on what he thought about her actual speech. What you're describing may explain an observation I've made to our audience before, which is Trump needs a straw man. He needs a persona to play off of. Um, where he doesn't do well is, is, is him and his communication style and ideas in a vacuum. But if you give him a straw man, if you give him Lion Ted, if you give him Little Marco, if you give him Crooked Hillary... Uh, that works for him. And that's why early on in the campaign, Hillary's run and hide strategy worked because he was essentially a one man act and all of his negatives came to the table. And then, of course, when the campaign forced her to come more and more out of hiding, that brought more of her negatives to the table, ultimately culminating in the letter that Comey put out a week before the election. And I'm wondering how this plays out now when you're the president, when you are a one man show for at least the next two and a half, three years until the Democrat primary process kicks into high gear and and what that will do with Trump and, and whether he's going to need to find ways with a Meryl Streep or some other figures in pop culture or media to concoct a straw man for him to play off of. What do you think? 
No, I, I think that's a very good observation. And the thing is, is I would like to say, well, this is, I think, exactly what he should do. But I'll be honest with you, him even getting as far as he did and winning office surprised me. So I, I'm always putting that disclaimer in that we don't exactly know what's going to happen and what exactly is going to work. However, I do feel pretty strongly about this. So picking up what you said, I think something he's done very effectively is call out people who seem to be the enemy. So I think if he continues to call out enemies, and this is one of my concerns with him as Putin, is he's actually praising his leadership in many ways and not criticizing him enough. I think if he can criticize what we view as bad guys, there is a way he can go about this and still stay true to his brand. I would still argue he doesn't need to give Putin a nickname. Um, He can still call him out without giving a hashtag that can trend. But I would say there are a lot of elements of his communication that can continue if he just gets rid of some of the comical aspects of it, which I think many people don't think is fitting for the office of the presidency. Now, I was an interest of full disclosure. I I was during this last campaign, uh, Beverly, I was never Trump uh, as a conservative. Now, I know most of the other uh, name people that were never Trump, and I know almost all of them suffered a ma- some sort of loss of, of revenue, audience, etc. I didn't experience this. Uh, in fact, I actually experienced the exact opposite. Our show continued to grow despite all these things. And no, I, that had nothing to do with the position I took. I just took it because I thought it was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, but I, I've often wondered why we were one of the exceptions of people that did not see uh, a huge hit uh, to their uh, to their platform for taking the stance. And, and the conclusion I came to is, similar to what you said a few minutes ago about Trump, I, I began developing this platform with this notion, I'm not, a, I'm, not a two, I'm not a party guy. I'm not in this to advance a party. I'm going to tell you what I think, whether you like it or not. I'm willing to take the consequences for that. And if that means we're, you know, never one of the four or five biggest shows, I'll live with that. And so that's sort of always how I've, I've, I've messaged our show and conducted it to the audience. So, yeah, I'm sure there were a ton of people that listened to us that disagreed or were disappointed or this graded on them after a while, but it didn't shock them. It didn't surprise them. I bring that up in the context of this conversation because I'm wondering if the reason why these antics backfired on Rubio and then he went back to being, you know, the the nice dimpled guy and ended up getting 200,000 more votes in Florida than Trump got in November. I'm wondering if it's because it wasn't sincere, because it looked like he was playing a role that's not the notion we have of him going in. And if there is a a future outside political figure that is looking at running for office that wants to emulate what Trump has done, then maybe if they assert that brand from the beginning, so that is who people really think they are, they might be more inclined to buy into it than if you try to change horses midstream. Absolutely. And I would say a perfect example of this as well as Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm a conservative, so I do not agree with Bernie Sanders' policies whatsoever. But I find it fascinating that here you have a gentleman who's, what is he? He's over 70 years old, obviously seems kind of like a curmudgeon in how he delivers, but yet millennials loved him. They loved him. So why is that? Well, it's because they believed that he believed what he was saying. And I would even say people who seem to flip-flop on even support of Trump, I would say look at the difference between Senator Ben Sass and Senator Ted Cruz. So you had Senator Ben Sass coming out from the beginning saying that he wasn't going to be a supporter of Trump, that he was making a principled decision. 
I don't think it hurts them. He still is doing well. I think he'll still do well when he's up for re-election in four years. Ted Cruz did a flip-flop. Beverly, hold that thought right there. We'll have more with Beverly Hallberg on conservative media training in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Train the Swamp, the Steve Day Show. Back here with Beverly Hallberg. She is a conservative media trainer with clients all throughout conservative media, Capitol Hill. Her company is called District Media Group. She's also a visiting fellow at Heritage Foundation. When we were rudely interrupted there by the commercial break, Beverly, you were talking about the difference in approaches between Ben Sass and Ted Cruz and how they each handled the rise of Trump to the nomination. I want to let you finish that thought. Ted Cruz did a flip-flop, and I think it has backfired on him, and it has hurt him because when he then did the endorsement of Trump after at the convention saying, I'm not going to, you lose the authenticity and the sincerity. So I think there are many people who voted for Trump, like most of my family, who voted solely for Trump because of the Supreme Court nomination, not because they liked a lot of what he did. Now, I was in your camp. I I did not vote for Trump um, because I have principled reasons why I did not. Uh, But at the same time, I know a lot of people who preferred him to to Hillary because of the option would listen to someone like you and say, well, I agree with you on the principles and you're sincere about it. So I'm still with you. So I would say your assessment is accurate on that. In other words, if there's somebody listening to us right now that wants to do this for a living or run for office, Don't go against your own brand. Don't do that. It is better to have a consistently bad brand than to to try and reinvent yourself all the time. Is that what I hear you saying? I want to say it quite like that. If you have a bad brand, maybe you shouldn't run for office to begin with. As I like to say to people, um, being an elected official isn't the only way you can help your country. There are a lot of other ways that you can help. So determine whether or not you're a good candidate. I think that's important. And then from there, it is making sure that whatever tactics the media may pull on you, that who you are really comes out. So sometimes people think media training, when I train people to do media interviews, that I'm trying to change them into somebody they're not. And I always laugh. I say, no, I'm trying to make sure the media doesn't change you into somebody you're not. I want to make sure the real you can actually come out. So, yeah, I think authenticity is king. As you said, it sincerity is king. And Donald Trump seemed authentic throughout this election file. And here's what I would say to you. He's continuing it so far through his presidency, at least his president-elect. So I think his inaugural speech will be really interesting on Friday. Beverly Hallberg, she's a conservative media trainer from uh, the the District Media Group, also a visiting professor, I'm sorry, fellow there at the Heritage Foundation. I love stuff like this. Yeah, Hopefully so the audience does, me. too. I'm Take just care. fascinated by this whole discussion. Right, so Aaron and Todd, your uh, reaction to what we just heard Thanks for being with Beverly us tonight, Hallberg. Beverly. We appreciate and it. And it seems to me that what she is saying is you can violate the norms all you want, but you have a hard time, if you're good at it, but you have a hard time trying to violate the norms once you've already set a different kind of norm. What do you think, Todd? Well, in terms of norms and uh, t- teaching the people she wor- she works with to be their true self, which I believe what she said, mm-hmm. th- going forward, that's going to be an incredibly hard challenge under uh, Trumpism uh, because people clearly don't know who they are or willing to sacrifice who they thought they were or perhaps never were. This is her world has changed just like everybody else's. And people have... And she admitted that. Yeah, and people have been uh, operating a scam just within their own minds and their own hearts for a long time. If you're asking a conservative, just be comfortable, be who you are, and your audience is not really conservative, 
you might sleep well at night. That may be a me- you. You'll, you certainly have a measure of integrity. Uh, but in terms of the the product of changing hearts and minds, um, I, it it might be a losing game. I, I'm not saying do do anything differently, but I think you just simply have to address th- that we're not living in Mayberry anymore. And as Steve, you've said a, a lot. You've said it what a year ago. The the, the conservative world that even you thought existed clearly didn't on some level if so many people that we thought were on our side were willing to sacrifice so much and we already knew we had a broken side we already knew mitch mcconnell and company on our side but look at all the other people we saw go a different way so yeah this last election joyously taught me i am more behind the eight ball than i had previously thought exactly and i already aaron was not necessarily known for being sunny side up you and uh, a lot of other people this uh, election as well uh but this uh, and, and everybody else basically uh, this is, I, I think we need to be, when we're talking about communication styles, I, I think we need to be, and specifically Donald Trump, we need to be careful about conflating personality with character. Does that make sense? So people. That's a good observation. You because, bet it does. Yeah, because people, I think we, we've been saying that people were attracted to Trump's personality, but mm, there was a segment of people who loved it that he made it personal. He just, they, that, and I think that was probably uh, most, most of the cult. But it's not, it's not part of your personality when you go after Mer- Meryl Streep's acting um, uh, abilities or lack thereof. Uh, when you p- make it personal, that says uh, more about your per- uh, your character than your personality. Donald Trump's personality is that he doesn't give a care uh, what anybody thinks of him. I think that's, uh, but that, that again, that can kind of feed into his, his character as well. So I, I think we need to be careful, as I said, conflating character with personality. And that has everything to do with how the next generation or Trump wannabes um, or people who want to channel whatever channel uh, Trump channeled in the future, how they run their campaign. I think we also need to be careful that we don't conflate character with uh, agreeance or identity. Mm-hmm. You know that because you wear my team's uniform, and, and and I know I make a lot of sports analogies because when I learned when I made the transition from sports media to news media is really the dynamic is almost exactly the same. It's just as Todd likes to say, quoting from Spinal Tap, it's dialed up to eleven. All right, but this idea because I like because this guy's a Republican or a Democrat and I am that I I immediately give them some sort of benefit of the character doubt that I wouldn't give to somebody else. I use myself as an example. When I say Obama is a Marxist, that is not meant to be a personal demeaning term. I'm making an observation about his ideology. Similar to if he were to call me a fundamentalist, I understand that at times that is used as a pejorative, but I would receive that to mean he he, he thinks that I hold true to the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. I'm okay with that. I'll, I'll own that. Uh, just as, you know, I understand that Marxist has been thrown around in other eras of Americana to silence people uh, unfairly. I understand that. But it doesn't change the fact that his ideology is largely based in the teachings of Marx and Nietzsche and Engels and and Darwin's Descent of Man and that era of Western tradition and philosophy that gave birth to utilitarianism, progressivism, etc., that, that he is one of its offspring. If I were to say he's a terrible person, that he's, that's when it becomes personal. When we talk, when you talk about, well, you know, I mean, he's a terrible father, husband, that's when it becomes personal. Um, you know, but to me, 
labeling somebody's ideology, even if there's historically, some have used that as a pejorative, Todd, if that's your ideology, that's who you are. That's not, that may be provocative to some, but to me, that's not personal. Well, provocative or otherwise, what I hear you saying is your brand of messaging is just to tell the truth. Your, your messaging isn't angling in any way i mean the angle is the truth yes and, and i and that's a rare commodity these days. i think we just we're in the shadow of martin luther king day there's never a wrong time to do the right thing i think we just need to start there and let the chips fall i mean for example make. when i hear people say and we said this during the election people say well you know maybe trump's got better character than we thought look at his kids well you know if that's your standard you have to apply it to obama so yeah, we caught one of his daughters with a joint about him about two months ago. Think about this. They came into the White House elementary school age. They grew up underneath the most searing spotlight imaginable on this planet for a child to be immersed in. And until that moment a couple of months ago, had we heard hide nor hair scandalously from those children? No. Not a word. Don't they get some credit for that? I think they do. You're a dad, Todd. You think they get some credit for that? I don't. There's a plenty of reasons to not like them. I don't need to find new ones. That's You're exactly right. right. That's exactly right. And that's and that's the difference to me. But I know some people. It, it's in the eye of the beholder. If you say anything provocative, you've made it personal, because the truth does sting. You're listening to Steve Dace. For Patriots, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. A uh, story that uh, that broke last night after we were already well into our show and had everything planned. I want to spend just a few a few minutes on it now. And and this was the decision by President Obama to to pardon. Effective in May, correct, is when they're going to let him walk out of prison. Uh, Bradley Manning, one of the original WikiLeaks agitators who was supposed to be in a military prison until about 2045. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, Obama has given him a pardon. And in May, he's going to walk away a free man. There's a couple of things I want to say about this. Number one, I have sat here because I, I, we believe in the truth on this show. Fear God, tell the truth, make money. Those are the three things. We don't necessarily start to show off with that every night, but they're still how we go about our business every single episode here on the program. The truth is, there is prima facie evidence. Whether you want to hear this or not, whether you like it or not, there is prima facie evidence, meaning enough evidence that something bad may have happened, that it merits an investigation. There is prima facie evidence that Russia, maybe clumsily so, maybe far more extensive and and nuanced than we know up front. We don't know, but there is at least prima facie evidence that a foreign power, a hostile foreign power, intended to intervene and influence our election. I think we should investigate that. And I say that as someone who also points out, even if Russia is guilty of everything you can fever dream on the left about them, they didn't tell they could they didn't stop Hillary Clinton from never campaigning in Wisconsin. They didn't stop Hillary Clinton from not taking Pennsylvania seriously until the last week of the election or Michigan for that matter. They didn't set up Hillary Clinton's private email service that she was funneling information through and then lied about it for a couple of years. They didn't do those things to her. She did them to herself. 
So to me, this the principle at stake here is not this election. The principle at stake here is, do we allow hostile governments to intervene in our domestic affairs? And the answer to that ought to be, hell to the no, we don't. But we should investigate it first to see if the prima facie evidence is confirmed or not. That being said, and I, I maintain that stance, because the hypocrisy of my political opponents doesn't change what the truth is. That's still the truth that needs to be, that needs to be affirmed. That being said, those of you on the left thinking and lamenting Russia's involvement in your political demise, I had whatever patience I had for you, which was at the time, frankly, minimal, is now exhausted. I don't want to hear any more about Russia and WikiLeaks and how damaging they are to America when your standard bearer let their, their, their second-in-command, essentially, out of a military, out of prison. When the stuff that he leaked led directly to the hands of bin Laden himself and killed American soldiers and was used to target our men and women in uniform. I don't want to hear any more. I don't want to hear any more of your crying and whining. I agree this should be investigated, but it has nothing to do with you. It's because of the larger principle at stake. You've lost, though, all the moral high ground. I don't want to hear any more. When your argument is that it is a national security threat to try to impose on an election we lost, but it is not a national security threat to let a guy go whose leaking led to the targeting and deaths of American soldiers, you've lost the argument. You have no argument. You're just a hack. Enough. And there's one more thing I want to say about this. Can we keep it real here, yo? Do you guys mind? I've got some real. All right, let's keep it real. If Bradley Manning wasn't a cross-dressing transvestite, he'd still be doing soap on a rope in some military prison until 2045. Can I get a witness on that? Seconded. No question about that. So the moral of the story is, if you're in seek of a presidential pardon here in these next 36 hours, try some, proclaim yourself some form of sexual deviancy, you will become Rosa Parks. Bradley Manning's getting out because he joined one of the left's cherished grievanced victim classes. That's why. And for no other reason, and don't, Todd, let them lie to you. Further context, the man who is now forgiving a cross-dressing traitor has spent how many years prosecuting little sisters of the poor? This is a man and his followers and his apologists. We can, we can talk all about we're all we're all Americans, but we sharing a country with people who will give that a pass, but who are going after little sisters of the poor. The fight's on, folks. Yeah, you can't. You, there's nothing to share with that. There's there's no accommodating that. They're, they're 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 just simply that must be defeated. It can't be accommodated. It has to be defeated. You're listening to Steve Dace. Never attack.
back what you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Day. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz. Each each night at this time, or roughly around this time, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, but each night towards the latter half of the show, we take a look back at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the show, because we can't get to everything, even in three hours, but these are some headlines trending on social media or at the water cooler where you work that are certainly certainly worthy of at least a few hot takes, and Aaron has those headlines. Thank you, Steve. Got a lot to catch up on this evening. On Monday, CNN Tonight, a Morehouse College professor and CNN commentator Mark Lamont Hill stated that President-elect Donald Trump's diversity coalition was, quote, a bunch of mediocre Negroes being dragged in front of a TV as a photo op for Donald Trump's exploitative campaign against black people, end quote. Help me to understand why repeating on a national platform a demeaning pejorative about your particular demographic or subculture is somehow anti exploitive. (laughs) Explain to me how exploiting yourself in such a way, voluntarily demeaning yourself and your own peer group by using terminology like this, somehow furthers your mission. It doesn't, Todd. Unless your mission is, again, I'm a partisan hack. I'm a partisan hack. If that's your mission, fine. Um, That should be therefore exposed. But I, I see I don't see in any way, shape, or form why demeaning why demeaning advancement of your own peer group helps your cause. Unless advancing your peer group isn't your cause. For the first time in American history, a black man is going to administer the oath of office to a president of the United States. I mean that's powerful symbolism. Why you wouldn't celebrate that is beyond me. Unless this isn't the symbolism you're looking for, Todd. We're not interested in racial reconciliation. We're not interested in racial advancement. I'm interested in my own ideological advancement. I'm interested in my own ideological uh, desires and and symbolism. And I just couch it in this... Um, diversity language in order uh, to get you to agree to stuff that you probably wouldn't agree to if I didn't lie to you like that. Yeah, what uh, Mark Lamont Hill called these folks, in essence, is Uncle Tom's. Yeah. You, politically speaking, you're supposed to stay on the Democratic plantation. Know your place. And these photo ops of nothing short of uh, Martin Luther King the third sitting there in meeting uh, with uh, Donald Trump you're supposed what you're supposed to be boycotting this election you're supposed not supposed to be meeting with this man they're getting nervous uh remember a while back and, and, and not to get in the weeds on the sarah palin thing but we she was scolded and republicans were scolded because there were uh, notions of using targets uh, you know in terms of taking out certain uh the uh, the optics of ta- targets to take out certain political opponents 
you know, the, the stuff like that is used all the time. The, the rhetoric of war in politics. Hero man is overtly using a term. I mean, and words, words, words. We're told all the time, you know, words are the, the required for safe spaces. If I was on a college campus right now as a white man, and I, I was heard out in public saying the word Negro, I, I'd probably be expelled. But this guy gets to slap his own uh, and, racial and, brothers and, and, around with and, it? And, and shame on CNN for allowing this. You know what? They they were calling me all the time to come on during the election. I just didn't have time to to honor all their other requests. The last time I came on is when they had me on that Kaylee, whatever her name is, fool, who's just sat there lying. So I called her a liar because she was lying to people. And the host Brooke, whatever, actually backed me up that she was lying. They have not called and asked me back ever since. So if you want, if you go on CNN and defend the actual truth of a, on a news network, they don't ask you back point out that the person that's on this network is lying to the American people, they don't ask you back. But apparently, if you go on there and you drop the most just inane, demeaning, racially charged language you possibly can, that fits within our mission statement and you're back again tomorrow night. That was the next point I was going to make. I, I, I read up on this, but I didn't uh, I didn't actually see it. Did anybody? I, I know multiple people are on the um, panel with him. Did anybody call him to task for this? Yes. In the moment? Yeah. In the moment? Yeah. Okay, But, but the people you need to call him the task are called the ombudsman and the editor and the assignment editor and the executive producer of CNN. As in, we don't do this here. We don't do this here. If you want to... No, it's a fair point to say, hey, I think, I, don't, I think Donald Trump doesn't really care about racial minorities, and therefore I don't understand why racial minorities want to go to his administration and serve him. You want to make that point? I don't necessarily agree with it, but that is an intellectual point that can be made, argued, and should be debated. This is not an intellectual point. This is an attempt to demean your own peer group because they don't want to do things exactly the way that you wish them to. And if that is not some form of a of a bond of, of a mindset where you have to live in bondage to some to an, to an external authority other than yourself, then I don't know what is. I mean, that's the that's he essentially made the exact same argument that slave masters used to make to people like him. He just made it on CNN. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly all that he did. Last story, an undercover investigation by Project Veritas has exposed the D.C. anti-fascist uh, fascist coalition's plans to attack the inauguration of President-elect Donald Trump and Vice President-elect Mike Pence with large stink bombs. Furthermore, <laughs> job ads running in more than 20 cities offer $2,500 per month for agitators to demonstrate at this week's presidential inauguration events. Guys... So first of all, Chuck Schumer's first big media event as Senate Democrat leader was to stand next to a sign that said, Making Americans Sick Again. I don't know who advised that. And now your, your big plan to disrupt Trump's nomination is to take a president that you want to convince Americans doesn't have the temperament and the maturity to be president and act like you're in the uh, sixth grade. So he gets to be the adult? You guys are all doing this wrong, Todd. You're all doing this wrong. Actually, when you think about it, this they're doing it right as as it applies to the, who they truly are in their soul. I mean, or who they think the American people are. Well, progressivism, progressivism, in essence, is one giant stink bomb. So this is perfect. <laughs> well said. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace.
them by their own petards. The Steve Day Show. Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. I want to let you listen to some audio. This is from yesterday in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Betsy DeVos, her confirmation hearing as Secretary of Education, and this is an exchange that she had with Bernie Sanders. I believe that we should make public colleges and universities tuition free. Senator, I think that's a really interesting idea. But I think we also have to consider the fact that there's nothing in life that's truly free. Somebody's going to pay for it. Oh, and so, yes, you're right. And you're right. So, oh, and so, yes, you're right. And you're right. So, and so, yes, you're right. And you're right. So, it didn't quite go down like that, did it? No. Okay. The Reagan Battalion on Twitter. Yes, yes, I know. But, Bernie uh, Sanders was doing his Max Headroom right there. Yes, yes. I just wanted to see how many more times they were, were going to loop that, <laughs> yes. actually. So I didn't say anything for a moment. But uh, did you hear that? Well, nothing Ooh. is free. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right about that. <laughs> Says the guy with three homes. You're not one of my uh, millennial um, adorers, are you? <laughs> Mr. 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 Uh, class Warrior is just two homes behind Mitt Romney, guys. Two homes behind Willard. Nothing is free. Nothing is free. All those professors aren't going to teach for free. They're not. Like a few of you have already emailed me. Oh, I, you know, how am I going to listen to your show? You have to, you have to subscribe. If you think it's worth your while, you should subscribe. I understand you may not have the money. But we, we, we can't do this for free, guys. You know, so either we buy adver- we sell advertising, which then we would hope you would buy the products we're advertising, so it would cost you money then. Or if you don't want to hear ads, then we'll put together an ad-free show and you have to subscribe. Because the money to all this equipment... Hey, are you coming in here for free, Tom? No. No, Aaron, how about you? Uh, checks you work, are you, clear you, and you, still. You work in Penub? Buckwheat. No. <laughs> Neither am I. Nobody's doing anything for free. You know, that's that's the reality of the world. And how about them apples? You get Bernie Sanders, of all people, to stand up there and admit. Uh. <laughs> college, free college ain't free, guys. I love that noise that he makes. Uh, <laughs> is that is that sort of like the Vermont version of Beavis, of Beavis. and Butthead? Yeah. Uh, uh. Yes. Um, nothing is free, sir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. So you mean to tell me you just lied to all those millennials <laughs> for the last year, Bernie? All those people never challenged me on this. They, they never, just those ate those it kids, right up. Not one time did all those kids at those massive <laughs> rallies say, who's going to pay for all of this? <laughs> you just told me it was going to be free. I forgot where I was. Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, nothing is free. You know what DeVos should have done right there? Picked up her mic. <laughs> dropped it. And just ejected, just walked out. I'm done. My work here is done. My work here is done. Thank you. I'm here all week. Try the veal. You're listening to Steve Dace. Now 
are about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight at the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, made the big announcement at the top of the show tonight. We are moving to CRTV in February. That's right, we are moving to CRTV in February. If you want to learn more about that, uh, there is a post pinned to the top of our Facebook wall with all of the information, including the early bird discount that you can take advantage of right now uh, at CRTV.com by using my name as the promo code. That is DACE, D-E-A-C-E, D-E-A-C-E. Use that, you'll get a pretty good discount on your first initial subscription to get our new show, which will be multimedia. That's right. You'll get to watch us do the show every day. Uh, It will also be on earlier in the day as well. So no more late nights. Uh, We're going to be on uh, at a time that uh, my family is certainly looking forward to and hopefully will be more convenient for you as well. Let's get to three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is three questions when our producer Aaron gets to turn the tables on us. Ask us three questions about anything. Literally anything is, is what he can ask. Nothing's off limits. But there is one rule. He has to answer the same questions himself. Aaron, you may fire when ready. Thank you, Steve. What book that's uh, been published in the last 15, uh, actually now it's uh, the year 2017. Maybe I should get my years right. What uh, book published since the year 2000 has had a big impact on your thinking, or at least some impact on the way you think? Oh, boy. Uh, Published since the year 2000. I'm going to go, I'm trying to think if, how Now Shall We Then Live by the late Chuck Colson, if that came out in the early 2000s or the late 1990s, I can't recall. Um, but um, that would be on the list if it was from the early 2000s. If it's, if it's not, then let me give you a backup. The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian is a book I would highly recommend. Uh, and it, it really takes you behind the scenes of how evil works, how it gets its message out, how it frames its argument. Uh, the Marketing of Evil by David Capellian. In fact, a lot of what I wrote in Rules for Patriots was an antidote to two, to two things I had read. Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, obviously, hence the title. But the other is, when I read Capellian's book several years ago, talking about how the other side carries out its business, I wanted to come up with a framework to challenge that methodology. So... Off the top of my head, those would be the two I would recommend first and foremost, Todd. I'm not absolutely certain it was published after 2000, but I think so. It's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Absolutely fascinating. This guy considered himself a liberal, perhaps still does, but he went over to India and was around that culture, and he just realized the obvious truth that that, that culture is 
deeply conservative, not conservative as we view it, but uh, in terms of its traditions, nothing close to progressive liber- uh, uh, secular liberalism that, that we deal with. And so it caused him to relook at everything and what both sides, right and left, truly value, what their priorities are. And whether you are on the right or the left, this book is a absolute must in terms of your own self-assessment. You know, you know, you got my brain cooking. I got several I could offer up. I, another one I recommend is called Why We're Not Emergent by two guys who should be. Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck wrote this book several years ago about the so-called emergent church, which mm-hmm. is really just the old liberalism rehashed uh, and reintroduced, the old heresy just repackaged for this day and age. That's another one I would recommend. Yeah, and you were right about the uh, Colson book that uh, came out, uh, I think, in uh, 2003, 2004. I would say anything by uh, Os Guinness. He is um, he's one of the great thinkers. Uh, of our time and I think one book in particular that I've read that, well there's a couple there's there's Fool's Talk and then there's Renaissance and Renaissance I really enjoyed came out a couple of years ago uh, where he details how the church and, and it's been said before but said in, in a way that only Oz Guinness can how the church always does its best work and always is the most revolutionary and always the most uh, seemingly the most fresh when the times are, are darkest and when you by the world's standards seem to be uh, at the edge of your or at the end of your rope that's when the church does its best uh, work so i i enjoy basically anything by oscar i know you asked me for one can i mm-hmm. mention one more sure uh, not enough people read this book. It's from 2006. Paul meets Muhammad, it, it, a Christian Muslim mm-hmm. debate on the resurrection, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's a somewhat it's it's a somewhat fictional book about sometime in the future when holographic technology is mastered, and they find a way to recreate holographically Paul and Muhammad, and they bring him into this massive football stadium essentially. And there's irreligious atheists, Christians, and Muslims, and they have these two holographic uh, images that are complete downloaded with their complete works and thoughts and letters and everything they wrote, uh, and and they go they go mano y mano in a debate that is absolutely a worthwhile read. Next question. You mentioned our big announcement. We're going to have a multimedia show on CRTV. CRTV.com is where you can sign up. What's the biggest thing? Let's be. Let's get personal here. What's the biggest thing that scares you about being on camera every day? I, you know, I've done it so often. I don't really get scared about it anymore. Um, I. The only thing I am I, concerned. That's the, I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. The only thing I am concerned about, though, is you know when I get going and the metabolism gets going, the energy gets going. I I, I rock. So I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to be more cognizant of that, lest I'm gonna create my own meme <laughs> on the internet. So probably that, Todd. Nothing. The, the the leap has been made. The Coming, man without fear. Oh no no no! Coming into radio, and the 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 challenging thing was not. Um, I was policing myself when I first came into radio. I wasn't just letting it fly. You know, thinking how every thought sounded. Mm-hmm. You, you got to just get past, just be who you are. You got hired to do it for a reason. There's you don't have to don't don't script yourself. Uh, that that's just not authentic. So now that that's done. I mean, I got a face for TV. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't really think anything scares me. Um, this is, I, I, I do think that there's, there's always you, you got to be aware of what you're doing with your hands all the time. Like I, I have no idea what to do with my hands, especially when I know I'm on camera. So be looking for that, especially. I just set myself up for failure right there. Question three: What's mime the- <laughs> by Aaron McIntyre? <laughs> What's the best uh, spacecraft? Is, 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 he, is that miming or voguing? Which is it? <laughs> I have no idea. 
I'm sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, what's the best spacecraft in all of sci-fi canon? Oh, easy. Good all right, if you think it's easy, then go ahead. Millennium Falcon. I figured you were going to say that. So th- there's two obvious answers. You gave one of them. I'll go ahead and give the other. Starship Enterprise. Those are the those are the two that are. I mean, they those are the two iconic vessel images in the history of. But sci-fi. you said yourself to play Devil's Advocate. It's so perfect and iconic that they destroy it in every other movie and rebuild it again. It, that's true. Um, they've done that a little too much, you know. Uh, I agree, but. I think that we are probably the last people to complain about resurrections, don't you think? Right? So there you go. Hey, how'd you like I turned that around on? Did you like that? How'd you like that? <laughs> Jesus apples? Juke. I just did the Jesus how Juke in sci fi. I know. Holy cow. There that is, is no limits to level. my ability yeah. to Jesus Juke you. I can, I can Jesus Juke you anywhere. I am the eye in the sky, if not the year of the cat. Aaron. I'm the eye in the sky looking at you. Um, sorry, I was just about to quote that entire song. Thank you for very much. I, I will have to go off the beaten path here and say Anakin's pod racer. Just kidding, no. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> trigger warning. Um, I, would, I would have to say um, probably the Slave One, because I'm a huge, I'm uh, a huge uh, Boba, Boba and Fett. That's Django Boba Fett's Fett. ship yeah. for, the, for the non-nerds out there. Right. And I, I just, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the jetpack. And Nobody just, says the Death Star since they've only made that in every Star Wars movie ever. It blows up, too, just like yes. Starship Enterprise. You would complain about the Enterprise. They blow up the Death Star in every movie now. Yeah. You I know don't... what I think about Force Awakens. <laughs> Can I give you an underrated one? Sure. That if we were a little bit older, might have gotten mentioned. If we had somebody here who was about 60 years old on, on, on the show with us, might have mentioned this. Monolith. Aaron, Aaron just said, "I don't know what, I, I don't know what that is." Todd, you don't know what I'm talking about. You, you should be old enough. Are you talk, talking about 2001? 2001, 2010. Oh, yeah. yeah, the yeah, monolith. Yeah, yeah. That that was that was an iconic. I didn't know that was. That a was spaceship. probably before the creation of Star Wars. The most iconic vessel image in in uh, in, in cinema history because Star Trek didn't really take off. Until the seventies, when it went when it went into syndication, we could watch it for free. Really, wasn't didn't have a huge viewership actually on network television. And so, when Stanley Kubrick put the monolith together, we saw that on screen for the first time. And in, for my money, I think the most underrated sci-fi film ever is two thousand and ten, the sequel they did in the eighties with Roy Scheider. That's really well done. You're listening to Steve Dace. I personally believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy, worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian, Tea Party, the free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is your college philosophy class on the radio, otherwise known as Worldview Wednesday, where we delve a little bit deeper than even we typically do into today's uh, debates. What are the real worldviews behind what it is that we talk about and discuss and argue about each and every day here in this culture? That's what Worldview Wednesday is all about. 
And if you like this topic, um, I'll take the credit for it. If you don't, this was actually Erzin's idea, and I'm going to blame the whole thing on him. Okay, but when we were kicking around what we would do for tonight's Worldview Wednesday, Todd, you had the idea of discussing what was the expectation level of the people who created the office of the presidency of these United States. What did they expect? What was the, regardless of whatever your ideological preferences were. And that's key right okay, there. That, that you were, what do you think they were, that you, they believed those who created this office? Not what a Republican, not what a Democrat, what a president. Not what a Federalist, not what an Anti-Federalist, right. not what a Democrat, Republican, not what a Whig. Regardless of whatever your ideological peccadillo or preferences may be, what were the baseline expectations for this office? And given the fact we're going to inaugurate a new one here on Friday, you thought this was a good time to maybe have this conversation. And at the very least, my guess is their baseline expectations couldn't have possibly dreamed of the fever swamp that is the mind and heart and soul of Donald Trump. So that's why we're not really going to be talking about it. We've, look, I'm, we're, we've talked about Trump endlessly in the past. We're going to be talking about endlessly in the present. But the frame of reference for what the office, what putting your hand on that Bible, what job you are expected to do that's an important, as you say, plumb line. So let's discuss what we believe, based on our own study of the founders, they thought were the baseline expectations for the office of the presidency. An office that really has no precedent in, in human history. In that they created the most powerful office as it currently is constructed on Earth but with inherent limitations going in because they didn't want to recreate a king, but they recognized there must be order. Somebody must ultimately be in charge, even in a free society and a government built upon checks and balances and separation of powers. There has to be a CEO. So I've got a list of five things that I think the founders would demand of any president, regardless of their ideology or political party, even in the year 2017. We'll discuss these one by one, gentlemen. Number one, that you would, and I put these in a specific order in case anybody wants to know. Number one, that you would limit yourself to the constraints imposed upon your office by the Constitution. For if you exceed those constraints, then you have by and large exceeded the jurisdiction of the Constitution, you have set yourself up above what is the law of the land. The document that you swear an oath to uphold and protect and defend, you have now put yourself above it. And you have said, the, I, the Constitution is framed by my actions. Not that my actions are limited by the Constitution. And since you're dealing with people who formed a government with an inherent suspicion of centralized authority and human nature in general. This is why I ranked this number one. You have to be willing to constrain yourself, even if you have the ability, because the political prevailing winds of the day don't have the stones to, to reel you in. You must have the humility and the character to still say, despite that, despite the fact I can do a thing, I must not do that thing. Because it is outside the jurisdictional authority of my office, Todd. So what you're saying is the number one requirement of a president is virtue. 
and the founding fathers thought so restraint high, yeah yes and that they that was so important to them that it, that's why it was so unanimous at that time that the the great man George Washington was unanimously believed to be the one, not because of any pol- he he was a federalist, but not because of any policy position he had. It's he was because- given the office specifically because he didn't want it. He, yes, that's it, the tone they were trying to. Because you don't want this is exactly why we're going to give it to you. Because if we gave it to somebody that even had ideals we liked, and they decided immediately, how do I begin expanding un- the unwritten rules of decorum and unofficially what this office is allowed to do? This whole revolution we just fought about jurisdictional authority and separation of powers and Republican form of government, Aaron, that's all out the window. Yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned restraint, and that this is not just this is not the pirate code here. This is not just more like guidelines <laughs> and actual rules. This is part of the very fabric of why we have a president. They enumerated powers for a reason. Exactly. exactly. Why we have uh, separation of powers, why we have checks and balances. It's f- part of the very fabric of our leader. Yes, we need one, but there's a reason we have a president, not a king, a president, not a sultan, a president, not an emperor because we have to have somebody who recognizes um, and, and just inherently has restraint within him. And, and if, if you want to know why this is obviously number one, do you know what two words are found nowhere in the Constitution? Executive order. You will not find the words executive order anywhere in the Constitution. And now what has happened is Executive orders were originally issued largely symbolically proclamations, proclaiming today, uh, like Abraham Lincoln, by executive order, today is a day of Thanksgiving. And now we are enacting policy this way. Well, of course, if, if, if one president decides I'm going to, and it, which shouldn't be policy, but the rest of the government behaves as, as if it is, so it de facto becomes such. If a president decides I'm going to, I'm, because you won't stop me, I will enact policy this way, what must the next president do if he wants to undo that? He must therefore enact policy himself in order to undo the policy that you did. And we just continue this drain-circling cycle of, of, of limitless jurisdictional authority for this office, which they hotly debated amongst themselves to avoid that happening. It is why a president was not given the power to declare war, but Congress does. It is why a president was not given the power of appropriations or to coin money. Congress was. This is why. Because they were afraid this, that is now our normal, they are afraid this would happen. They did not want a society where if you disagreed ideologically with Barack Obama, you feared what he would do in the White House by hook or by crook because he would be unrestrained by his own authoritarianism. And likewise, if you're on the other side of the divide and you did not vote for Donald Trump, they did not want a society where you would fear then what he would do to you. The goal of this office was not to use its trappings to impose your will and to punitively punish those who didn't support you or your political opponents or the constituencies of the opposition, but rather to protect their rights, regardless of their political status. How much of that has been lost in our day and age? More on this in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace.
Liberty's Bat Signal, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review, as we continue on this Worldview Wednesday. What were the expectations of the Founding Fathers for the office of the presidency, regardless of the ideology or political preferences of the one taking hold of it? That's what we're discussing here tonight. We've got five expectations. Number one, we just discussed that you would limit yourself to the constraints imposed upon you and your office by the Constitution. Here's number two. That you would defend the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Now, it shouldn't be an original thought that I wrote this because it's right out of the oath that you take. But it's often just similar to vows couples take in, in weddings where they used to just... You know, we used to watch the romantic movie where they would just sit there and just, they'd be flummoxed. I mean, these were so important to take these vows. You're going to do it once in your life. How do you word them? Do I do it myself? What do I put in there? And now most people just, yeah, okay, I do. Yeah, let's get this over with. You know, the reception's here. Yeah, let's get our drink on. And that that's really what's become of the oath. I just, you know, it's perfunctionary. It's ceremonial. It's not obligatory. But what does it mean, both foreign and domestic? Well, the foreign part, I still think we do pretty well. Now, we, we just came out of a presidency where the man who was our commander-in-chief, with his progressive viewpoint, had a view of the world and of the Arab world that just doesn't line up with reality. But still, on a day-to-day basis, most Americans don't live, if they're sane, don't limit their freedom on their own, don't limit their travels on their own, uh, you know, from, from coast to coast we, because of a fear of a foreign, uh, a foreign agent, a foreign contagion, a, a foreign attack, a terrorist attack from externally, even though we do live in an era where these, where these things are spontaneous. See that as the nightclub in Florida, San Bernardino, but most of us yet, it's not omnipresent to the point that we are self-limiting our own enjoyment of our, the trappings of our freedom and acknowledgement of these things. The domestic side, though, I believe we are way off. What did it mean, all enemies, foreign and domestic? Sometimes your courts are an enemy to the Constitution. You took the words right out of my mouth. Sometimes your Congress is. And just as those congressmen take an oath of office, should you, as the president, become an enemy domestically to the Constitution? They take an oath to do something about you? You take an oath to do something about them. Just as those justices take an oath to do something about you? If you become an enemy domestically to the Constitution as president, you take an oath to also do something about them. You are the chief executive officer of these United States. And that means sometimes you have to execute, Todd, if you know what I'm saying. There's perhaps no more traitorous idea in all of the American political landscape than the courts have spoken. People believe it on the right and on the left, and that notion must be defeated. There is no congressman or any executive for a long, long time believed that whatever the court said was the last word on anything. The Constitution is ours. It is not theirs. Fight for it. 
people probably asking, well, what can the president do about uh, Supreme Court justices? What what power does the president actually have to just unilaterally? I mean, you just said executive orders. You, you know, you're not supposed to do that. There's nothing in the Constitution about executive orders. We've we've made this point many times. It's worth bringing up again. The real power of the presidency is what we just saw Barack Obama, President Obama, do for the final time today. He had his final pre- press conference. The real power of the presidency is in the bully pulpit. There's something you can do about it. When you push a narrative, eventually, and, and you have that t- type of platform, eventually you're going to win if you just stick to your, to your gun. So, yes, there are, there are things that the president can do about anything domestically that is a threat to the Constitution. One thing George W. Bush did that a lot of people forgot because it didn't get publicized. But after the Kelo versus New London decision on private property by the Supreme Court during his presidency, where they expanded eminent domain to mean that for economic development, we can confiscate your private property now. What he did is is he demanded the federal government under his jurisdiction as its CEO would not enforce or, or, or this practice would not do it said, hey, we're not, we're not, the federal government is not, even though the federal government has limited eminent domain jurisdiction anyway, but they're not going to use that, even that limited jurisdiction to say, we're going to do this now to private property. And he was right to do so. Why didn't he do the same thing on Roe v. Wade? Okay, so we got the Mexico City policy. We're not going to fund through our own means uh, the killing of children abroad. Why didn't we do that here domestically? Why didn't we do that? Why didn't we say, why, why, will President Trump say to the FCC, um, we're, we're, we're going to make sure the airwaves are free for people that don't want to comply with the rainbow jihad. Federal licensing boards are not going to deny licensing to those who don't want to line up with the new immorality. Those are powers he has. Will he use them? That's how you protect us against enemies foreign and domestic. You're listening to Steve Dace. You cannot stop him. You can only hope to contain him. This is Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's continue on a Worldview Wednesday. What were the Founding Fathers' baseline expectations for the office of presidency, regardless of the ideology or political preferences of the one who obtains it? Number one, we've got five. Number one, that you would limit yourself to the constraints imposed on your office by the Constitution. Number two, that you would defend the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic And we chose to emphasize domestic because a lot of that's lost in our day and age. Numbers three and four kind of go together, gentlemen. Number three, that as the chief executive officer of the United States, you would faithfully execute our laws. But that is in recognition of number four, that you would recognize what is the hierarchy of law and govern accordingly. A court's opinion of the Constitution does not supersede the Constitution. Let me say that again. A court's opinion of the Constitution does not supersede the Constitution. I had an attorney ask me on Twitter last week, what's your basis, what's your, what's your precedent for your notion that Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional? I said the Constitution. He's like, well, abortion's never mentioned. I said, yes, it is. 
It's right there in the Bill of Rights, Fifth Amendment. No person shall be denied life, liberty, or due without life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What do you think that means? Well, a little baby in the womb is not a person. Well, that's a different argument, and we can have that. Because now this is where we do have a a modern interpretation of what is a person. We have prenatal science and the likes of which they didn't have in the 18th century. And they will lose that argument. And they will lose that argument. In fact, the point of my argument is to make you have that one because you're not going to win that argument. But you can't kill people without due process of law. It's right there in the Constitution. And in fact, if you want to come back at me and say, well, the Fifth Amendment wasn't written in that context, Steve. Okay, well, the 14th Amendment has that exact same language. That exact same language. No person shall be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That is part of the equal protection under the law provision of the 14th Amendment. It mirrors almost that exact same language. So Roe v. Wade cannot supersede the Constitution. Either the Constitution is the law of the land or it is not. Same with Obergefell. Marriage is nowhere in the Constitution. Raise your hand if you've ever gotten a federal marriage license. Anybody. Todd, you know anybody that's got a federal marriage license? Not familiar with that. Where, where's everybody ever, where's every, anybody ever gotten their marriage license from? County Courthouse. The Electoral College. <laughs> <laughs> County Courthouse with a state insignia at the top or the bottom. What's the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution say, Aaron? Forgive me, does the 10th Amendment of the Constitution not say that whatever is not explicitly written here in these first nine amendments in the Constitution itself is therefore the purview and, and jurisdiction of whom, Todd? I've been told Barack Obama, but I think it's the states. Yeah, that's, if you actually read it yourself, you're right. If you watch cable news, it's Obama. But if you read it yourself, it's the states. And since there is no federal jurisdiction for marriage, no one's ever obtained a federal marriage license. Therefore... If states are who regulate marriage, who determines what is a marriage from a p- political standpoint? The states do. Obergefell has no standing as a decision. None has none. Now, a president can't force governors to do their job, but you know what he can do? He can look at all the federal departments under his own dom- domain and say, guys, I can't, make, I, I can't make a cowardly governor. I'm not going to send in the National Guard to invade a state. Over something like this. Okay, we're not going to do that. We're not idiots. But you know what we also aren't going to do? We're not, that, it's, that, we're not even going to recognize that. We're not going to let groups use that as a launching point to use the federal government to uh, silence other people's freedom of religion or free speech. A president can absolutely do that. Absolutely. And, but, but to do that, you have to recognize what is the hierarchy of law. God's law is number one in our country. That's the natural law. The organic law is the Declaration of Independence, which is the, which is the earthly expression of that first law. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certainly unalienable rights. Among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And then the next in the hierarchy, the, higher, the chain of, of, of command, is the Constitution which further specifies what these things mean. Then we have our state constitutions, then we have federal statutes, and then we have state statutes. And then we do have a place for court opinions to clarify what those things are. But it is, I think I'm at rung seven of the ladder now, guys. It's not rung number one. 
Courts don't tell us what the Ten Commandments say, guys. Not the way it works. And that's not the way it works on anything. If you're right or left, that's not the way that it works. But the president, as the CEO, has got to set that tone for the country. And that brings me to number five. That you would put the welfare of the American people ahead of all other vested interests. Your own re-election. Your own political party's best interests. Nowadays, we have to say what they didn't have to wrestle with in the 18th century, global interests. That, that you're the president of America, not the Middle East. I love Israel. We should be a staunch defender of Israel, but you're also not the president of Israel. That's Bibi Netanyahu's job right now, okay? You're the president of these United States. So, you, so listen, I, I think you put Israel as a priority because it's within the best interest of the United States to do so. They're the only country with a like-minded value system in that part of the world. But one day in Israel, I can't see the future. One day in Israel, there may arise, or arise a, a president who knows not Joseph, if you know what I'm saying. Maybe makes bad decisions. Do we just say, well, because it's Israel, we just let him get away with anything? No. We don't. Yet the president of Israel. Yet the president of OPEC. Yet the president of the UN. President of the United States. She put the welfare of the American people ahead of everything. Even your own re-election even your own political party. Put the American people's best interests first. We'll have some reaction to what we just heard in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. have to pry this microphone from his cold, dead fingers. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show to wrap it up here on a Wednesday night, as well as to wrap up a Worldview Wednesday. This is the time of the program. We sit back and find out what we learned here this evening now that we've come to the end. Todd, what did you learn? Well, you summed up the beautiful paradox that is the American experiment in a way that every president must understand. First and foremost, they must understand that this country belongs to the people. Therefore, they need to understand the concept of subsidiarity. You laid it out. The Tenth Amendment, not, powers not enumerated here, belong to the states. But beyond that, it starts with the family. Uh, it starts with the city council. People are supposed to control their own destiny to the extent that is possible. But how do you understand that as a whole? And here's where the paradox comes in. You're supposed to empower the smallest form of government to make sure that works like it's supposed to. You have to go to where you talked about the Declaration of Independence. You, simultaneous, we are bottom-up with subsidiarity and top-down, starting with Almighty God. Completely agree with that assessment, Todd, and um, 
the, the found what I learned tonight that the founders were really really smart dudes. I didn't learn that tonight, but I was reminded of that. And when we say that they when they crafted this constitution, that they that they foresaw some of the abuses that might happen, they weren't savants. They didn't have crystal balls. They didn't game plan all of this two hundred plus two hundred fifty plus year uh, history of this country um, year by year. This year we're going to have a civil war, and then there's probably going to be a world war next year, and then uh, we're going to have various assassins. No, they didn't do that. What we mean when they were smart and they foresaw this stuff is that they understood human nature and they could see how things could um, could develop based on what they said or what they or the words that they wrote down. Even as good of an effort and as really one of the the most inspired, um, if if you want to call it that, uh, pieces of literature um, this this Western culture has ever known. These guys were really smart. And why are we talking about this? on Worldview Wednesday. It's because they wrote this constitution, this thing that we've been talking about, in light of the fact that human nature is not basically good. That is a key part of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Of course, it sounds um, uh, it sounds negative, but that's that's really what it is. So that's that's I think that's one thing that we need to take about this. The founders were smart, but they were smart in light of the fact that they knew human nature was what it was. Because they they lived in a re, in reality, mm-hmm. they had they you have to accept the world as it is, not as you wish it to be. In fact, the first step to making the world a better place is to accept the world as it is. It seems to me, you know, the question often gets asked of Christians: Well, how do you you know how does bad, God allow bad things to happen to good people? I think the more challenging question to answer is: If you think human nature is basically good, then how come you have to improve this planet all the time? Doesn't make much sense. You 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 think human nature is basically good, and yet you've got to convince us to accept utopia? Explain that dichotomy. John three seventeen. You're listening to Steve Dace.